You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. It survived eight presidents, lasted from Elvis Presley to Kurt Cobain, from CBS to CNN, early television sets to the World Wide Web on home PCs. In its lifetime, it saw the assassination of a president, the attempted assassination of two more. When it began, there was no NFL and the Beatles hadn't yet come to America. The longest period of domination by Congress, by one party, began when Eisenhower was in office, when TV was still fairly new and, of course, only broadcasting in black and white, and it would last to the Clinton presidency. No other party even got close to that record of domination. In retrospect, the Gingrich-Hastert Republican Congress, lasting from 1995 to 2007, was a historically normal run, in fact, even a bit on the long side. The New Deal Democrats owned the House from 1933 to 1947. That's 14 years. The Harding-Coolidge-era Republicans took the House in 1919, in the aftermath of Wilson's arguing for a League of Nations and that being rejected by the Senate. And they stayed there until 1930. Till those by-elections held during the Depression would kick them out of power, holding the House for 11 years. Wilson and Champ Clark's Democrats, that era going from 1911 to 1919, eight years, The Civil War-era Republicans, going from 1858 to 1875, 75 years, long stretch but comparable, as was the McKinley-era Republicans, from 1895 to 1911, 16 years, all seemed to be the historically norm. Even in a time of popular presidents and major changes, even where a great crisis, depressions, wars brought a party to office, No one has matched a record of holding the people's body, the most important branch of government, for 40 years. This was extraordinary. And it's worthwhile examining what happened to make it so, and what happened to unravel that unprecedented domination. What can John Boehner, if we were sitting in the speaker's chair where he is, what would he like to know? about this 40-year run and how possibly his own party could hold the House for just as long? Well, we'll try to answer those questions. You would think that this historic event would have begun with a bang, but actually it was sort of a whisper. The Democrats in the 1954 midterm are up against a popular president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and they strongly hinted that they would actually work better with the moderate Eisenhower than with their own Republicans. Eisenhower uh, 
writing in his memoirs, joked about how the Democrats seemed closer to him in, in their campaigning. And they were battling Republicans over how much better they could cooperate with Republican Eisenhower. The main issue, though, of this election came down to Joseph McCarthy, who was accusing members of the federal government of being communist agents. His antics had been celebrated by Republicans leading up to the 1952 elections. Then, as their own party was in power, his antics began to get annoying. When he thought the president had lashed out on him, he went and attacked Eisenhower publicly, only to find out later that the president really hadn't. This episode showed the tensions between the Eisenhower administration and McCarthy. When he then took on the army in a televised hearing, opinion turned against him. The Democrats, however, didn't really latch on to this issue as a party. They didn't take any action regarding McCarthy or try to start a censure vote. They let Republicans do that. And they waited till after the midterm. Even their own party was divided on this issue, some supporting McCarthy and some against him. And they didn't really use the issue as a big campaign issue in the election. There was a variety of reasons for this. Why should the Democrats spend their political capital when Republicans were in charge and they were the ones responsible for doing something about it? Most of the blame for McCarthy's extreme antics were going to go to the Republican Party now anyway. And besides, Democrats didn't want to be seen at all as anti-communists. Lyndon Johnson, the minority leader, was playing careful political chess, and he had a great teacher. One day, when Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson were riding with a 74-year-old man, he pointed up to a building in Washington, D.C. and said, How do you like my house? The man was pointing at the Capitol Dome. He was Sam Rayburn, and he would serve longer than any Speaker of the House in history, including Henry Clay. In 1954, after that midterm, he got a third chance to take the office, which would be his last. Democrats took control. Sam Rayburn became Speaker as he had been in the 1940s. Highly effective, highly respected, bit of an enigmatic man who never traveled, never married, could not be bought. Rayburn held the Democrats together, uniting liberals with conservatives. The Speaker exercised enormous control. Tip O'Neill, who came to Congress two years before the period of a domination started, told a story about how a congressman came to him and asked for a donation as he was in a tight race. The Speaker pulled out a bottom drawer in his office and threw out $10,000. He also told about how he'd call the Army Corps of Engineers and say, Start building that dam. I got a member who needs it. When the Corps argued that there was no authorization for that, Rayburn would say, Don't worry. I'll worry about that. You start building, and we'll get you the money next year. These things could not be done today. Rayburn held the Board of Education meetings in his office with other members where he would sip bourbon and get a sense of what other members were thinking. He'd get their measure of any new members that were coming to Congress. The Texan Rayburn reflected the coalition that held the Democratic Party of city machine bosses, principled liberals, and Southerners that held a grip on power. He was personally a supporter of civil rights and urged future speakers that uh, became his protégés. Jim Wright and Carl Albert were urged by Rayburn to vote for civil rights bills. 
He had no patience, he said, for men that were afraid of their districts, even though he equally thought that the first job of a representative was to get reelected. His own district was pro-segregation, yet he did what he could to advance civil rights bills in a hostile Congress, where more than half of the Democrats were Southerners. But he did it his own way. When President Kennedy called Rayburn in and wanted to talk about the Rules Committee, where Southerners led by the controlling and cantankerous Howard Smith were blocking any civil rights bills from even getting out for a full vote. Rayburn slapped his hand on the table and said, No, sir, that's the House's business. Kennedy caught the tip and talked about something else. Instead, he battled with Smith directly to help get Kennedy's bill out of the committee and with after a great battle, was successful. Rayburn ran the House for almost the first decade of the period of domination from 1955 to his death in 1962. Then his protege speaker, John McCormick from Massachusetts, took over. His tenure put the Democrats in a sure footing, Rayburn's tenure, that is, and while McCormick wouldn't be as respected as Rayburn, Rayburn had put the party on such good footing that it survived McCormick's run. He and his direct protégés would run the House for 20 years. The protégés, however, were not as good. McCormick would have a rough go, especially towards his end. Younger members would fight him. Mo Udall would challenge him for the leadership in the late 60s. Oklahoma and Carl Albert would take over after McCormick was convinced to step down and he would preside over Watergate, but would end up getting embroiled in his own scandal about uh, donations. Tip O'Neill ran the House during the Reagan years and was himself replaced by Texan Jim Wright, who also was embroiled in a scandal and was replaced by Washington State Representative Foley. Rayburn, McCormick, Albert, O'Neill, Wright, and Foley, six speakers, span that 40-year period. Alternation is apparent between South and North and West. You had Texas, Massachusetts, Oklahoma, very close to Texas. I mean, the Alberts District was very close to Texas border. O'Neill from Massachusetts, Wright from Texas, and then Foley from Washington. But what about the opposition party? The Republicans were not inactive during the 40-year stretch, especially when their party held the White House. During the 40-year reign of Democrats, Republicans came the closest to busting through in 1966 in reaction to civil rights and Lyndon Johnson's great society programs, which cost a lot and were seen by some voters as excess. Republicans came fairly close that year, but Lyndon Johnson had built up uh, such a landslide and such a uh, mandate in 1964 that he survived. 1972, on Nixon's landslide in 1980, when Reagan won in a landslide, and again in 1984 when Reagan had a second landslide and brought in Republican House members on his coattails. Only twice, though, did the Republican Party have more than 200 seats out of the 435 in the House. They had more than 200 seats in 1955, it was right after their loss, and in 1957. These were all right after the initial win. 
and they broke 190 seats after Democratic uh, losses in the presidential elections of 72 and 1980, when you had candidates McGovern and Carter running for re-election, very weak Democratic tickets. When Jerry Ford, the young-looking Kennedy-like Michigan Republican, took over the Republican Party in the House uh, after a uh, coup, he had big designs. He wanted to be Speaker of the House. And that was probably a reasonable expectation. But as it would turn out, had Ford not become vice president and then president after Watergate and all that, he would have had to stay 30 years in the House in order to make that happen. And it's unlikely he would have been minority leader or even in the House for that long. A couple of historical flukes plagued Republican attempts to take over the House. While they should have benefited from the popularity of Eisenhower, they lost steam when the president won in a landslide. It was a lonely landslide, or as Carl Albert said, the general's jacket has no coattails. Where the Republicans lost the White House and should have picked up steam, in Kennedy's first midterm, right? usually a president wins, uh, usually a president's party loses seats in a, in a first midterm, the Cuban Missile Crisis, coming right before the midterms, boosted the president and his party and staved off a loss. The Kennedy assassination led to a huge outpouring of support, and along with a weak Republican presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, in 1964, led to a huge Democratic majority in the House. So even while you had a snapback in 1966, as we discussed, angry about the Great Society programs, it wasn't enough to overcome those years of Democratic gains. So okay, Republicans had a win in the presidential campaign in the next year, 1968. Richard Nixon won. But it was a close three-way race. George Wallace, running in the segregated South, was pulling Democrats up. So even though Richard Nixon was winning the election and George Wallace couldn't possibly win in the Electoral College in southern states, Democratic House members were getting his votes. Wallace didn't generally run his own House members. As President Nixon tried to increase the Republican majority, he also had to cooperate with Democrats on some domestic issues. Then came Watergate and the Democratic landslide of 1974. Reagan's revolution took the Senate, but was not enough to take the House in 1980. And O'Neill's deft handling of the 1982 midterm election gained Democratic seats that would protect them from losses that would come running on the Walter Mondale ticket in 1984. This history is important, but the pervasive uh, factor that shielded the Democrats from losses was their complete and utter control of the South. When Rabin took over in 1955, 134 of the Democratic majority of 234 House members, that's more than half, came from the South. They were conservative on spending, They didn't want any progressive programs, and they were certainly against desegregation. This meant that to get the House back, Republicans had to take the North and West, really had to run the table there. During the 40-year reign, there were two speakers from Texas and one from Oklahoma. Not really imaginable now under Democratic Congresses. While the 40-year reign is not directly tied to the New Deal Congress that took over in 1933, It is indirectly tied to it, though two Republican Congresses and a short Democratic one separate those two eras. 
Still, the activist Congress, the New Deal Congress, that had created Social Security, the Works uh, Progress Administration, caused a Democratic constituency for some time, which certainly the members of the 40-year reign benefited from. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. These factors go towards the explanation for the 40-year reign. The protection of incumbency is another. Winners attract donors, and by the 1970s, those who wanted to get legislation through Congress seriously were going to the Democrats and not the Republicans. It was so unlikely to see a Republican Congress that donations were going to the Democrat. Jim Wright, as speaker, had $1.2 million in campaign funds, a war chest that assured that he wasn't going to see a challenger. Tony Coelho, the majority leader at that time, had 734000 He was an expert at raising money. Now, this kind of money was not hard to raise in the easy Washington atmosphere of the 1960s and 70s. Right initially, when he uh, became a congressman, insisted that he'd only take donations of $100 or more. And he wouldn't take donations from anyone affected by legislation. But then, as he said in his memoirs, he started to realize that everyone is affected by legislation in some way or another, and he had to raise money. As for the Republicans, there was a complacency in the leadership of the loyal opposition that accompanied these long years of Democratic rule. Joe Martin and Everett Dirksen both urged their members to work with Democrats on civil rights legislation. Republicans found some commonality with Democratic liberals. Republicans wished to make themselves available for any votes that might split up the 234 Democrats. Howard Zinn felt that the two parties were the same. Neither one, he said, changed the American political consensus in any significant way in the 20th century. Certainly evidence is there in the Congress that dominated much of that 20th century. The beginning of the end would be the wills of two men. House Speaker Jim Wright of Texas and Maverick Congressman Newt Gingrich of Georgia. Jim Wright took over after Tip O'Neill decided to resign in 1986. His goal, working alongside Senate colleague Robert Byrd of West Virginia, was to control the government through the legislative branch. Nothing short of that. Wright, like O'Neill, was a veteran of the House since the 1950s, and he had known Rayburn, though he couldn't be called a true protege. The Speaker came out swinging. He passed a Clean Water Act, and immediately proposed to reduce tax cuts in order to trim the deficit in a way not preferred 
by the White House. Wright envisioned the kind of speakership that Thomas Reed or Uncle Joe Cannon saw around the turn of the century, that of total control from the speakership. Rayburn controlled the House through his personal persuasion, but also the committee chairs, especially armed services, ways and means, appropriation, and rules held a lot of sway as well. The post-Watergate Congress actually made reforms that gave more power to the person they felt could be the most progressive thinking, the speaker. Wright had a different style from Tip O'Neill. He clamped down on leaks from the speaker's office that O'Neill used to laugh about and tolerate. He challenged Reagan directly and had a few, but not meaningful, conversations with the president, whereas Tip O'Neill had had uh, a lot of disagreements, of course, with Reagan, but also was his good friend. O'Neill didn't quite get along well with Reagan. He used the Democratic caucus, which usually, under O'Neill's speakership, it consisted of loose meetings, He used it as an unofficial whip meeting, counting votes and finding out who was on his side and trying to persuade them. At the same time, Georgia Congressman Newt Gingrich was equally concerned with moving aggressively as a Republican Party in the House. He was introducing a new philosophy, one not shared by the leadership of the GOP during much of the 40-year reign. Gingrich was using the new TVs in the White House for special order speeches. These were floor speeches that would occur after the the Congress's business was done to speak about Democratic issues. If they could not do anything on the floor, at least they could get out to a TV audience. He initially battled Speaker O'Neill. Gingrich attacked Massachusetts Congressman Eddie Boland. Of course, Boland was a target because the Boland Amendment prevented the United States from giving aid to the Contras. Speaker O'Neill felt that uh, Gingrich's comments had cast aspersions on Eddie Boland's patriotism, and Boland was a good friend. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. O'Neill then, an unusual step for a speaker, but they are allowed to do this, handed off the gavel and went to the floor of the House to make a speech. He said that Gingrich's attack on Boland was the lowest thing that he had ever seen. Trent Lott, uh, leading the Republicans at the time, objected and had it stricken from the record. It was a real rebuke for the speaker. 
Gingrich had undermined the dignity of the House, according to O'Neill in his memoirs. And in order to get some revenge on what the congressmen were doing with these special order speeches, he instructed the cameramen that were operating the Congress congressional cameras to pan to the audience so that everyone could see that these people were making speeches when no one was present. So that if Gingrich would attack Boland, for instance, you could see that he was attacking someone who wasn't there. But Gingrich felt that they had to keep the pressure up. He felt that their GOP majority leader, Robert Mitchell, was just too soft. He was nice personally, Gingrich said, but he was conducting a strategy that would lead us to a perpetual minority. Gingrich's support was sometimes overstated. When he ran for whip, he won by only a few votes among his Republican members. But three things happened to help him win prominence among the Republicans and help him to eventually take the spot as Speaker himself. And one is just the reputation that Jim Wright was developing as Speaker. He was chafing Democrats who had liked a kind of easygoing way, and especially on the other side where Republicans had been congenial, now they were seen as enemies. Of all people, he received criticism from Dick Cheney, who said he was a heavy-handed SOB than the congressman from Wisconsin, Cheney. Weirder problems with O'Neill, to be sure, but Wright was worse. A couple of other incidents. Jim Wright had invited Daniel Ortega, the Sandinista leader, to the Hill to try to work out a peace agreement, something that seemed as an offense to the president. It was a violation of the separation of powers. The president was to conduct foreign policy, not the Speaker of the House. Then he offended Bob Mitchell. He offered Bob Mitchell his word that the Republicans would get a vote on their proposed budget. And then what he did is essentially make that impossible using some procedures and only members of the House might understand. Essentially, he offered the Republican plan first and then offered his own Democratic plan as an amendment to it. And this easily killed the Republican bill and allowed Democrats to not have the option to vote for the Republican bill, maybe not have Republicans have an option to maybe pick up a few stray Democrats, but instead would kill the bill. Mitchell didn't feel that that was what they had agreed on. And when he, the compromiser, congenial, nice guy, told his caucus that Wright had, in effect, screwed him, it sent shockwaves through the Capitol. I expect members to keep their word Mitchell said in a strong public rebuke. This coming from a moderate Republican who had always cooperated with Democrats, the ultra-conservatives took notice. Kill or be killed. Wright was out for blood. Well, as it turned out, Jim Wright was having lobbyists order 1,000 copies of his book in a unique sort of ethically questionable procedure. I mean, perhaps they just really liked his book. Health Ethics Committee's hearings began, and the Speaker was forced with either fighting it out and reducing the credibility of himself and his party, or resigning. His majority leader, Tony Coelho, already had his own ethical problems with a fundraising scandal, and that left Tom Foley, the minority whip. Foley held on, faced a rebellion from House members during his uh, reign of Speaker. McCarty of Oklahoma to the right and other uh, freshman Democrat to the left who wanted changes. Foley, from a conservative district of Washington State, held the House through the first Bush administration, but it was a very rough time for Democrats. Gingrich was minority whip, 
and they were being attacked left and right on all sorts of ethical charges. As an aide to uh, Texas Congressman Ron Coleman said, after 1989, we were shell-shocked, displaced persons after the resignation of Speaker Wright. The budget deal with Democrats, President Bush would lose the 1992 election, and with Clinton in office, minority whip Newt Gingrich made it clear he wanted to move from the whip position right to the Speaker, and did. Republicans, partially on all the excesses of the Democrats in the House, partially on lack of confidence with the Clinton administration, took back the House in 1994. That ended the 40-year reign. But yet now we can look back and see it as an event in history and certainly a political accomplishment, an example of compromise and coalition building. What would John Boehner or House Republicans do if they wanted 40 years? Well, some of it, some of these things actually seem impossible. Tight rules favoring chairmen helped to control what money went to districts. And a legacy of a powerful speaker, respected speaker, helped to enforce discipline by his mere presence. Then, even after he died, by his tradition. The lack of TV coverage in the chambers, less scrutiny by uh, bloggers and reporters helped. Wild fundraising with no limits. There's not a way that John Boehner could pull $10,000 out of his draw and uh, give it to a congressman to help the district. But to some degree, as you got momentum, success brought success. As the 40-year reign beat Eisenhower, Nixon, and survived disastrous presidential candidates like Carter and Mondale and Dukakis, there was a kind of awe of incumbency among those who donate money and lobbyists. And it made it hard to build up a war chest against them. We've had enough back and forth in Congress now that's certainly not the case today. You saw in 2010 that a four-year reign of Congress didn't scare much. Republicans were still raising a good amount of money. PAC money went to Democrats, but plenty of money went to conservatives, especially utilizing business coalitions. Now, if Pelosi had been Speaker for 20 years... And then Republicans were running in the midterm. I wonder if uh, they would have been able to raise the same amount of money without a legitimate chance of, of winning the House. So momentum, to an extent, builds momentum. And so that piece of advice you can't benefit from until you get there. It's simply hold on for as long as you can. But keeping the coalition intact was probably the best achievement of the 40-year reign. John Boehner might or may not have the skills to balance at least two groups we see in his coalition, the establishment Republicans, more moderate Republicans, and the new Tea Party Republicans. Can he balance principal leaders who simply want to cut everything, including even defense, with more moderate members or incumbent members who had been there a while and want to bring back money to their districts? To hold the majority beyond the 25-seat margin, they'll probably have to get into more northern and midwest and west seats. And it'll be up to the Speaker to balance the new Republicans that come from those districts who may not be as conservative. The South kept a democracy in power for 40 years, and the Republicans have that now, so they have that advantage. But the South never 
won the Congress for the Democrats alone. In fact, the Democratic Party spent most of the 1920s in the political wilderness, though they had an absolute lock on the South, so that alone doesn't do it, but it gives you a nice base. They'll have to expand their regional uh, majority. Whether President Obama wins the 2012 election or not may not necessarily matter. It's not always true that the president is able to win re-election and take back the House at the same time. Certainly, Lyndon Johnson did it. Certainly, Harry Truman did it. But Bill Clinton did not. Ronald Reagan did not. And since the Obama administration appears to be operating in a less partisan fashion, it may well be that they don't have the momentum to take back the House in gunning for as long a reign as possible. Boehner seems to have advantages, in my opinion, as a speaker. One is, is that he comes off as a nice guy. And it's hard to attack him. I don't think the, any uh, political consultant will be able to come out with an ad that will make John Boehner look like Newt Gingrich, unless Boehner makes some dramatic change. Oh, he will be attacked, to be sure, and already has been. But he comes off as a pretty nice guy. He does seem to want to work with all groups and eschews uh, any kind of nasty attacks on. If he develops the same quality of leadership that, say, Sam Rayburn had, where he can sit down with a Tea Party guy and sit down with one of the more establishment Republicans and say, look, you know, you've had the debate and I allowed that debate to happen and now this is what we have to do. If he develops that kind of respect and credibility in the caucus, it's early yet, but it could happen, Republicans could be in power for quite some time. As we tell this interesting story of the 40-year domination of Congress, two lessons are apparent. One is that maybe 40 years isn't really the goal, right? That's a long time historically. It was the longest. The 12 years of the Gingrich-Hastert Congress, as we said, was a pretty good run. Maybe that's something to shoot for in itself. You get 10 years, 12 years, 14, 16. That's a pretty good run for control of the body that appropriates money. The other lesson that's apparent, you hear so much in the media about, oh, look, the Republican Party in Congress is split between the Tea Party and the more establishment Republicans, those who want to cut everything, including maybe even Social Security and Defense, and those who maybe we want tax cuts, but let's not get crazy here. I still want to bring money back to my district. Those two types of Republicans. Absolutely correct to make that observation. That's there. It's presented as a bad thing that's going to rip the Republican Party apart and make it impossible for them to control the House. But actually, the history of the 40-year reign tells you that you probably need some sectioning. You probably need some splitting to have a party. You have to have a big tent or you're not going to get over 230 members to control the House. There are just too many ideologies and philosophies in America to make that work with just one group who are all syncophants who agree with the speaker. The skill is in building that coalition and keeping everyone happy and satisfied and holding on to the House. But the idea that uh, this sectioning is going to rip the party apart, in fact, it's probably the only way to play it. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, Facebook site where you can comment. And if you like the program, Tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.